Reading from Psalm 133. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It's like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It's as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. I love the physical image of the, you can just picture it, right, of the, of the oil, the precious oil coming down Aaron's beard onto the collar of his robe. This holy, precious oil uh, used by priests for consecration contained a mixture of four different spices which yielded a wonderful, sweet-smelling fragrance, which is to say that there's nothing quite so pleasurable as a group of people who are truly unified, one in soul and spirit. How good and how pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. The words of Psalm 133 were sung by pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem for festival worship. How great to be traveling on the same path, going down the same road, sharing a common purpose toward a common goal, to worship God together and to glorify Him. How much better than making the trip alone. How good, how delightful, how joy. What a joy for all to live together as brothers and sisters. Last week, I attended the, our, our new denomination's national gathering in Dallas, Texas. And I got to say that I used to dread going to denominational meetings, but no longer. I actually look forward to them. Imagine that. What a concept, right? There are about 1,500, 1,600 people all gathered together from all parts of the country and they were gathered for inspired worship and to listen to world-class speakers and to be encouraged and challenged in our joint effort to build flourishing churches that make disciples of Jesus Christ. And the unity that we experienced in that ballroom with 1,600 people together with great worship and the great speakers, I mean, the unity we experienced was palpable. It was beautiful. Uh, what a great feeling uh, to, to feel like we're on the same theological page and that we're all concerned about biblical values and, uh, and glorifying Jesus Christ and sharing the good news uh, with, other, with, with others. Uh, so it was. It was a wonderful time. Um, we, certainly uh, in ECO, our new denomination, uh, ECO Presbyterian, we don't always think alike on all issues and we don't always look alike, uh, but we are united in our desire to glorify Jesus Christ. Unity is a wonderful thing. It's beautiful. It's like oil, right? Not only does unity, you know, smell good, <laughs> but like oil, to use the image, it's, it uh, removes friction between people uh, and enables people to live in closer communion with each other. Unity actually was Jesus' greatest desire for His people, for His church. Shortly before he died, he prayed this prayer to the Father, John 17. He says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought together to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. It's a beautiful prayer. Jesus' greatest desire for us as his people. But in all honesty, unity is not easy to attain and to maintain. We may be brothers and sisters of one another, but uh, brothers and sisters, as you know, fight. Uh, I grew up with two brothers, two younger brothers, and though we loved each other dearly and we still love each other, I mean, we had some big brawls in our family life. We had some, a dilly of a fight sometimes. My two younger brothers would gang up on me and make my life miserable. Tell you what. So that happens in families, right? No matter how much you love each other, it's going to happen. There's going to be some friction. And that was certainly true. It's been true of the Christian church. And it was certainly true of those early Christian churches. Sometimes, uh, you know, it's easy to think, well, those early Christian churches, they had their act together, and they, you know, they were living the gospel, and if only we could go back to the early church, and <laughs> man, how wrong is that? The early churches were a mess. Uh, even though they were adopted into the one family, you know, in Jesus Christ, uh, but becoming followers of Jesus uh, didn't mean automatically that they ceased being sinners, right? And... Uh, I don't think there was one church back then or since that has not had its struggles, its interpersonal conflict. Uh, those early churches, as I say, were a mess, and that's one reason why Paul had to write so many letters. He had to straighten them all out. The church in Philippi was apparently experiencing conflict of some kind, no surprise. We don't know the precise nature of the problem. But in the fourth chapter of his letter to the Philippians, he mentions two women who were at odds with one another. He writes, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. These two women, Euodia and Syntyche, who were apparently influential leaders in the church, contending for the gospel at Paul's side, women in ministry, were allowing petty grievances to destroy both their, their ministry and their friendship, and uh, their enmity began perhaps to uh, infect uh, the Philippian church. And this may well have been the source of, the, of a conflict that Paul is responding to in his second chapter. Uh, and so we read in, from Paul, Paul's letter. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love being one in spirit and of one mind. 
Paul wasn't saying that they should never disagree, that they have to think alike on, on every issue. But it's, it's not superficial uniformity that the Apostle Paul has in mind here, but true Christian unity, people's hearts knit together in the love of Christ. And if they can experience and maintain that kind of Christian unity, Paul says, they will complete his joy. And the implication is that they will give joy to Christ, the Lord, the head of the church, and bring joy to the church as well. So this, this, this kind of unity that Paul's talking about is an incredible aspiration. We're to strive for that. But how does the church in Philippi, or any church for that matter, realize that kind of spirit, that unity of spirit? Well, listen again to the Apostle Paul, who cites the example of Jesus himself as he continues his letter. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. But rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Unity comes through the spirit of humility, as perfectly exemplified by Jesus, who chose not to insist upon his own divine prerogatives, who chose not to claim his rights and privileges, but who, out of love, humbled himself and became a servant for our sakes, so that we are to follow his, his example. We are to share his mindset in our relationships with one another. Unity can only be attained and maintained when God's people choose to humble themselves. Paul writes, in humility, value others above yourselves. Value others above yourselves. I think the New Revised Standard Version has, consider others to be better than you are. Well, what does that mean? I mean, let's think about this. In humility, value others above yourselves. Does, does it mean that we should consider other people to be more valuable than, we, than ourselves? Should we consider other people to be better than we are? Is that how we're to take the, that verse? Value others, don't value yourself. The issue of personal worth actually is not in view here. Uh, we're all made in God's image, and so we're all equally valuable in God's eyes. We're not to put ourselves down to elevate others in that sense. But rather, Paul is using a turn of phrase that means to put others first to, for a change, to give them the advantage, to regard them highly. It means, in Eugene Peterson's version of the message, to put yourself aside and help others get, a said, uh, get ahead. Uh, more fully, he says... Um, don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet-talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. 
That's what Paul is saying here. Not that we're to value ourselves any less. In fact, C.S. Lewis defines humility this way. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Does that make sense? Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. So that to move towards unity in our relationships, we must be mindful of the other person just as much, if not more, than ourselves and not always insist on our own way. In fact, in Paul's great love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, love does not insist on its own way all the time. It's not always me first, my interests above everybody else. That's not love doesn't always insist on claiming and maintaining one's own rights and privileges. It gives way so that other people can get ahead. The other day I was at uh, Costco. In fact, you could probably find me at Costco every other day. <laughs> Costco gets more of my money than any other place. Um, and uh, I was uh, in the checkout line, and I only had one or two items. Well, how often does that happen? one or two items. I mean, that's quite rare, actually. Uh, but there was a woman ahead of me who had, uh, you know, many more items, and, uh, you know, she was about to put her food on the, on the uh, you know, on the, on the register. And uh, seeing that I had just one or two items, she said, oh, please, you know, go right ahead. Um, and, uh, you know, pretty nice, actually. But see, that woman had every right to go ahead of me she was there first. You know, that was her privilege. But for that moment, she uh, considered the interests of others. She considered my interests, even though she was probably in a hurry to get out of there too. And so she let me go ahead, you know. How nice. Very simple illustration of what Paul's getting at. You know, put the needs of others above yourself. You don't always have to insist on your privileges. You don't always have to claim your rights. And I just got to thinking, how counterculture is that? Because everybody's claiming their rights without considering the needs of others. I read a magazine article in the dentist's office. And it was about an eight-year-old Seattle-area Cub Scout by the name of Bobby Joe Thomas. And Bobby sold more Scout candy than anybody else. I mean, he far outpaced all the, all the rest of the, of the kids. He worked something like, you know, uh, six to eight hours a day. He came home from school and was really working it, you know, going, to, going around the neighborhood. And, and he'd spend about 12 hours on the weekend. And and uh, he really worked hard to get the top prize, which was a trip for four to Disneyland. Well, Bobby, who had never been to Disneyland, the little eight-year-old kid, got to thinking about uh, some of the children that he had seen on TV who were terminally ill. And got to wondering if perhaps they would enjoy a trip to Disneyland and as it turns out, some doctors at Children's Hospital in Seattle picked some kids, and Bobby 
gave them the trip. It was a beautiful thing for a kid to think of other kids and to do that. And Bobby received all kinds of commendations, and, and a donor made it possible actually for, for he and for his family to go to Disneyland as well. But Bobby was rather taken aback by all the, by all the commotion, uh, by, all the, by all the attention that he received. He, and he said, I was only doing what scouts are supposed to do. Scouts are supposed to share. But you see, Bobby didn't insist on, it, on his own way, though he earned the trip and had every right to go. He put others above himself. In humility, he valued others above himself. He considered the interests of others above his own. And you see, this is the kind of attitude that unites people, that brings people together. Christ is our ultimate model. He shows us what real love is. He could only thought of himself. He could have remained comfortable upon his throne in heaven. He could have gone his own way, and he could have avoided the cross. But he was more concerned with our happiness. He poured out his life so that we might live. You think about the humility of Jesus Christ, the humility of God. It's an amazing thing. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant being found in human likeness. Wow. He did that for us? Unity is dependent upon an attitude of humility. And it follows that the greatest danger to unity in a church is a proud and arrogant spirit that seeks to lord it over others. Satan loves to sabotage a church by causing some people to magnify themselves at the expense of others. And once that happens, it does infect a church. And actually nothing is worse than a church fight. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has written a classic little book uh, on Christian community. It's called Life Together. Um, it really is. It's a classic book. I recommend it to you. But he puts his finger on the point of danger to unity in the community. And uh, he, he's, he quotes the Scripture. <clears throat> it's Actually, it's a reference to James and John who came up to Jesus. Actually, it was their mother who came up to Jesus and said, uh, Lord, we would like to be... We would like to have the chief seats of the kingdom. And then the others heard about it, heard about it and the disciples began to, you know, <laughs> began to rant and rave about the gall of John and James for wanting the chief seats and so on. But then Bonhoeffer points to this, the outcome. There arose a reasoning among them. Which of them should be the greatest? And then Bonhoeffer goes on to say, we know who it is that sows this thought in the Christian community. It's the devil himself, right? But perhaps we do not bear in mind enough that no Christian community ever comes together without this thought immediately emerging as a seed of discord. That the very beginning of Christian fellowship, there is engendered an invisible, often unconscious life and death contest. There arose a reasoning among them. That's enough. 
to destroy a fellowship. So that whenever individuals in a church start elevating themselves, believing themselves to be the greatest, believing that they alone have a corner on the Holy Spirit, and that they have all the answers and all the gifts, that they're smarter than anybody else, and they're wiser than everybody, that is a sure ticket to disunity and discord. And the devil has a heyday. It's like a cancer on the body. That's why each of us, each one of us must cultivate a spirit of humility by putting the interests of others above our own and seeking to have the mindset of Jesus himself. In the end, it's Jesus Christ who makes our unity possible. He's the invisible bond or the glue that actually unites us one to another to make it a reality. I mean, how, how else can such a motley group like you and me, like us, Merkle Teo Presbyterian Church, hang together? He's the head of the body, and each of us is growing into the head, taking our direction and nourishment from Him. And if we do that, if we're growing together in Him, then we will grow together in His love. When uh, officiating at weddings, I'll often use the, the, uh, the analogy uh, likening the marital relationship to a triangle, right? You got the groom on one corner and the bride on the other corner and you got God at the top. And as the bride and the groom grow towards the head as they, as they keep their focus on God, they inevitably grow together in love and they become more intimate and they become one with God and one with one another. And really the same is true of all of our relationships, our relationships in the church. The more we grow into Him who is the head of the church, the closer we become. Our unity actually is a sign of our, of our spiritual maturity. If we are all on the same page, moving in the same direction, if we are truly looking out for the interests of others, then that's a good sign. We're growing in Christ. So let each of us take responsibility for ourselves. Make sure that we are growing in Christ, that we are nurturing our faith, that we're really trying to seek to follow Him. Unity can't happen without people moving toward God and personal relationship. And it can't happen, it can't happen if we fail to heed the example of Jesus who modeled perfect humility and true love, who came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Oh, Lord, make us one with you and one with each other, and may our brotherly and sisterly love and our joyous unity together be, be so evident that others will take notice and will want to know you and become part of your family. For this we ardently pray. Amen.